welcome. Um, today we're going to continue a series that we kicked off last week called Breathing Room. And if this is your first time today, um, welcome to Encounter Church. I think you're going to love it. If somebody dragged you here and you're like, I don't really want to be at church, but it's Mother's Day and so I have to, let's just be honest, I'm here, um, I think you're in for a treat. Because even if you don't believe anything that I'm about to tell you from the Bible, I think what you're going to find is potentially one of the simplest but most powerful tools to implement into your life to experience breathing room. The last week, I I kind of set forth this thesis, this idea that if we want to experience breathing room, if we want to experience space in our life, that it begins with us addressing the pace of our life. That it's the pace of our life that oftentimes is the greatest enemy for us experiencing a space in our life called breathing room, margin. That many of us live and kind of experience this idea of frantic, hectic, hurry. Even picked up um, Sophia the first book in my daughter's room this past week. And the whole book was about Sophia's busy day. As if that was a good thing. And we wear the word busy as if it's a badge. How's life? Oh, it's busy. As if we should give medals out for busyness. Or if you said, I'm not busy, maybe perhaps somebody would judge you and think you're lazy or a bum. Right? But when we looked at the passage of Scripture last week, what we saw that is that God's not so much concerned about us being busy in life. He really had a better picture of what was best for our life. And that if we're going to begin to live out this space called breathing room, then we have to start with our pace. But I think the challenge is even in hearing that and starting to unpack that, you may think that the pace is about the speed of life. And it's not. Then when we talk about dealing with the pace of our life, it begins not with the speed, but with the sustainability. I lived in Denver one summer um, between my junior and senior year of college, and Denver is an, an incredibly beautiful place if you've ever been there. I mean, just the, the Rocky Mountains and grandeur and glory, and you just see the sunset behind it, and it's just this really like awe-inspiring space. Um, but I noticed that in the midst of the first week of living in Denver that each day my lips were getting Chappier, I'm going to make up a word because I don't know what you call when your lips keep getting more and more chappy. So we're going to say chapter lips. So that was what I was experiencing. In the midst of my lips getting chappier, um, I was also noticing that there was this low-grade kind of constant hum of a headache. I woke up with it every day. And that with each passing day, that my headache got worse. My lips got drier. My headache got worse. And it was this kind of constant cycle. I, I couldn't figure it out. Because I was doing, there was nothing like odd about my routine. It was the same thing I'd always been doing. Um, I was still kind of exercising. I was still kind of going through the rhythms of life. And, but I noticed that with each passing day, it just kept getting worse. And finally, someone who lived there said to me, um, hey, you don't know this, but Denver is a mile high. That's why it's called the Mile High City. Um, well, and because of that altitude, because of the humidity, um, it's a lot drier here. And see, I like Denver because I hate sweating. I don't know about you, but I, like if I could somehow plug my, my pores so that I wouldn't sweat, I'd love it. I hate sweating. And what I noticed about Denver that I had not noticed about Denver prior was that I never sweated. It was this like kind of Eden of dryness. My armpits were good. My hands, my head was good. This was like, man, this place is awesome. But what was happening through the entire time of me being there the first week was I was getting constantly more and more dehydrated. 
You see, because of the elevation, because of the humidity, I was losing water faster than I was taking water in. I'd been drinking water at the same pace I'd always been drinking water. And now I realized that that had presented a problem. And I think Denver, for me, was a really kind of great visual of what it's like for us oftentimes to experience breathing room in life. Because it's not about speed. It's about sustainability. It's about what's coming in to your life. And there being margin in what's flowing out. And that many of us, while it's not a physical dehydration, many of us live in the pantic phrase that's like this hectic, hurry, busyness, and we're emotionally dehydrated. That our energy is depleted. And when we live in it so long that we start to think it's normal, we don't even notice it anymore. And there's this kind of constant low-grade kind of something on the inside that says there's got to be more, there's got to be something better. Other people can't be this frantic, right? And we notice it in the way that we hate standing in lines. We notice it in the way when we start to drive, how a car pulls in front of us completely kind of untwines our entire day. I mean, even earlier this week, I was driving down the road and this uh, huge 18-wheeler started to pull out, just pulled out in front of me. And I said, oh, my goodness, maybe you didn't see me. So, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm in a bright car. Hopefully you notice me. And he kept going. And it was like, I, he didn't care about me. And it's like, well, he's got to do this delivery, and he's got to get this delivery, and he's trying to get out before this traffic hits. So we can, what starts to happen is we start to dehumanize towards each other, and we start to grow cold on the inside. And I know that sounds really exaggerated, but when we start to kind of listen to what's happening on the inside, we find that there's this emotional dehydration. And last week, we, we kind of stepped into this um, passage of Scripture that maybe even if you grew up in church or even if you didn't grow up in church, you'd heard it before, and it's Psalm 23. And that in the midst of these six verses, I think, is this beautiful picture of what our life was meant to look like, of peace, not panic. This idea of just purpose, not pain. And if we're going to start to experience that peace, if we're going to start to experience that purpose, and and that our lives are marked with those things, not the panic, not the pain, then I think we have to grow in our understanding and in our ability to sustain our pace. And that's kind of what I want to do over the next 20 minutes, is I want to kind of walk through Psalm 23 in a way that's going to give us some tools to help us do that and experience that. And if right now you're good, that's awesome. I still encourage you to take notes. Because the thing about this pace sustainability is that oftentimes we're called off guard when our pace shifts and things start to disappear in our lives that we'd never noticed for reasons we were refreshed. So I want to read Psalm 23, and then we're going to jump in, and I want to give you some kind of four kind of principles that are going to help us sustain our pace and grow in our ability to actually sustain our pace. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. All right, just that sentence by itself, you, you'd say, I'm okay with that. I'll take that. But it says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house 
of the Lord forever. Now, Psalm 23 is this beautifully written psalm that talks about peace. It gives this pace of life that's so calming. Cups are overflowing. There's no fear. There's still reality. There's bad things. But it's like above it all, there just seems to be this rhythm and pace of life that brings peace. And David writes this psalm. David, who goes on to be a king, one of the greatest kings that the the ancient Israel nation ever, ever experienced. But David comes out of the career line of being a shepherd, which is why he, why he writes about being God being a shepherd, because he can relate to it. That's, that's what he does every single day. And he's, when he's trying to sit down to process his thoughts, when he's working through this idea of this poem he's writing or writing or this journal that he's kind of documenting, he says, you know what? God's like that shepherd, that the same way that I'm, I nurture my sheep, the same way that I lead my sheep, God leads me. He ultimately kind of settles that God is the pacemaker for the flock. He's my pacemaker, too. That he seems to be over the sheep, leading them in a way that brings peace and life and wholeness. And then he begins to walk through verses that, like I said, maybe you've grown up in church, or even if you didn't, that you've probably heard before. But I think underneath this very simple six-verse psalm is actually some really powerful um, kind of points, some really like powerful visuals. The first thing is that you notice that he says that he's the shepherd and he leads them to green pastures and still waters, quiet waters. That there seems to be this natural rhythm, this awareness of needs. And then out of that, there's these paths that he goes on, and now he's in the valley. That there's both good and there's bad. There's places where life is flowing in, and then there's places, as some um, have translated that passage, that there's the valley of the shadow of death, where there's life literally coming out. And I think this is helpful because we have to realize that if we're going to start to experience and, and, and really grow in our understanding of how to become sustainable in our pace. We have to recognize that our pace is a tension we have to manage. That this idea of busyness is a tension that we have to manage. It's not a problem that we have to solve. And the reason that matters is that because oftentimes when you have a conversation with someone, you're like, how are things going? What's it like? They talk about their hurriedness and busyness as if it's some a problem that they can fix. Well, if I, if I could just switch jobs. Well, when my kids get a little older. Well, when we make it through this month. Or they talk about their finances with this sense of, oh, there's just this imaginary finish line. If we can cross it. But that margin and pace isn't a problem that we solve. It's a tension we manage. Because every single rhythm, right, that this shepherd realizes that there are rhythms, there are cycles in the same way that the universe breathes with the pulse of this universal rhythm, that that we as humans have heartbeats, we have breathing rates, that we live with rhythm. We have seasons as humans, just like the earth has seasons, that we have periods of time where the demand is far greater than the other. I remember a day very vividly where I used to sit and play video games all the time. And I had conquered 
wars and worlds and had status that like other gamers, because I had the time to just sit around and do that. If, if I tried to do that today, we would have some serious marital problems, right? What are you going to do? Oh, I'm going upstairs to play video games. I'll be down in eight hours, right? Probably wouldn't work. But we, there's this tension we have to recognize that we are all living in different places and that this hurriness, this busyness is not a tension. I mean, it's not a problem that we solve. It's a tension we manage. That I think it's quite honestly that we live in a digital age where all of us recognize the power and the necessity of having iPhone chargers or smartphone chargers when we're traveling because they can get depleted. And if you're ever in a place where your phone completely dies, you know it's kind of a scary place, especially if you're in a place you've never been before. And that all of a sudden, even if you're an introvert, even if you don't like talking to other people, all of a sudden you become the most social individual ever because you're like, do you have a charger? Hey, do you have a charger? Hey, could I borrow your charger? I was, I was in a coffee shop one time, and literally this couple who would have never talked to me, ever, would have never talked to me, all of a sudden they sit down because they're in a new space, their phone's dead, and they see that I have a charger. And we struck up a friendship that lasted about 15 to 17 minutes, Right? <laughs> But I think that there's something quite telling about the iPhone. If, if you've ever, if you have an iPhone, it's one of those like frustrating things that if you can plug the charger in when it's at 1%, you're okay. But if that thing dies, I mean, it like blanks out on you. You know when you plug that charger in, like 10, 15 minutes later, it's probably still not going to be back on. Right? But there's, there's something that's built into the iPhone battery to preserve this very nerd thing we won't get into. But there's something that's, that protects the battery that when it gets into a dangerously depleted state, it, the battery recognizes we won't flip back on until we hit a certain threshold. And then I think the iPhone sometimes is a great picture of the human soul and the way that that battery works. Because what happens is that most of us get into places of frustration because of not realizing this tension issue. What happens is that maybe, and I think this bucket visual is kind of a better way of understanding it. What happens is we go into to life and we're kind of, we fall into this like regular rhythm. We have things coming in. We have things going out. We, we have life-giving things popping in our life, right? The green pastures, the living waters. Then we have the valley. Of the, and, and so there's this kind of nice like place we fall into accidentally. But then what happens is in the midst of getting busier, we tend to drop the things that were giving us life in the first place, right? And that's where we end up cutting out one of the nozzles, and all of a sudden we have the same demands in our life, or even worse, there are greater demands in our life, and now there's decreased flow coming in. I don't know about you, but when I get busier, I tend to drop the things that are most helpful for me, right? I don't get too busy to eat junk food, but I do get too busy to exercise, I don't know if that's a personal struggle of mine that none of you can relate to, right? But we tend to get busy. We drop the things that are good, that bring life. And that by recognizing that there's this tension, and it's not even just getting busy. It could be maybe you're a couple and then you have a child. And all of a sudden, these two nozzles that were flowing in were working, and now you got 17 holes. You haven't slept in three days. You don't even know where you live anymore. And because you've got us, and you're a zombie. You're walking around, and you're just, you're depleted. And what happens if we live in that state for too long, and we get to this place of complete depletion, then we are, in very many ways, like that iPhone. 
we just start to feel cold on the inside. You start to hear this inner dialogue about whether it's that you, you know, you're a failure, you just can't do it, or whether you hear everyone else seems to have it figured out, what's wrong with me, or you start looking for escape, right? It may be in overspending, it may be in overdrinking, it may be in overeating, it may be that you just kind of start to escape into social media or into unhealthy habits, but we start to try to find escape from this inward pain of living in this emotionally depleted state. And the reason this matters is because if we're going to begin to experience peace, we have to realize these dynamics are working behind the scenes and that oftentimes we're not aware of them. It's only when we're in a place of depletion that we start to notice there might be a problem, but we still may not understand the dynamics that led to the problem. And so here's the thing that I think is very fascinating. When David's talking and he says, you lead me even though I walk through the darkest valley, I think it's fascinating. He says that I will fear no evil. That you, I've read that so many times, but it, it struck me just recently that why, why not talk about it's a valley, so there's elevation change. So surely it was physically demanding. So why didn't he talk about the physical demands or the intellectual demands of having to focus on the path? Why does he bring up emotions? Why does he talk about fear of, above all other things? And it's because I think the first thing that happens with us, this kind of primary battery that we live with, is an emotional battery. And for me, that was kind of a light bulb moment when I realized that one day, that most of the time, it's not physical exhaustion that stresses me out. When I get to the end of the day or the end of a season and I'm just done, it's not because I've been physically overexerted and I can barely almost walk. It's not because my mind is leaking because I've learned so much. What tends to happen is it's an emotional thing. And see, this idea of emotionally recharging, that's not just recognizing the tension, it's saying I need to make sure that I'm emotionally recharging, that what's pouring in brings life to me. That green pastures... And water, the living waters, that, that, those are things that sheep need to live. And that those things coming into his life, David says, gives me this emotional reserve to be able to, to make it through. I, even this past weekend, I think I saw a great picture of this. My wife um, was out of town, and, which meant that for the first time in multiple years, I had our four-year-old by myself. And, um, and so I think I've probably shared a couple times, I'm an introvert. Um, I don't actually enjoy talking. That I'm one of those people, I, like, my ideal getaway is not talking for, like, days. Just sitting, thinking, reading. It's not that I don't like talking to humans. I like humans, right? I am a human. It's just that talking is so emotionally draining for me. And maybe there's, like, two of you that can relate to that. And the other's like, I don't get that. That's okay. But I have a daughter who's not like me. I have a four-year-old little girl who loves to talk, talks about everything. In fact, she's like, Daddy, let's play. And I'm like, oh, great, babe. What would you like to play? Let's play stuffed animals. Oh, wonderful. What do you want to do with the stuffed animals? Let's talk them, Daddy. Well, what does that mean? Well, that, that means you get one stuffed animal, and I'm another stuffed animal, and we talk. Oh, Okay. Let's play palace pets. Oh, okay, great. How do we play palace pets? We talk them. 
It's like all weekend we talk them. Hey, Daddy, I got to go to the bathroom. Will you come in and talk to me? <laughs> yes, babe, because that's what I live for is talking. And so it gets funny because last night, um, my wife doesn't get in until like 1 a.m. last night. And, um, and so that means I've got to do bedtime again. And normally, like, it's very precious to me. I've been away all day working, and so I'm, like, really excited to be able to get home and, like, spend time. And, you know, and there's moments where she's just laying in bed, and we're talking. We have a little prayer story time, and I make up a story, and I, like, try to make her laugh. And I really, like, it's kind of this sweet moment we have. Well, last night wasn't sweet. Um, it was, like, stressful because we've been talking all day, and we keep talking. And she's like, my story was so good and so funny last night, right, that she, because I'm trying to rally, that it makes her more awake. And so now she's like hyped up, and I'm not sure how to bring her down, but one of the things that like helps to calm her is these lullabies. But it's not like normal lullabies. She has three different devices in her bedroom that all play lullabies of a different musical tone, different song with a different key and quality. Okay, and to get her to be able to relax, you've got to have like the radio, like CD lullaby playing, and then she's got this owl that when you poke the stomach, it starts playing lullabies. It says, "Oh, it's time to go to sleep now," and and then she's got this elephant that when you pull its tail, it's like the old school like jewelry box, like ding 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 ding. You know what I'm talking about? Like that ear piercing lullaby. And so I'm laying in the bed and I'm trying to calm her down and have all three of these devices playing lullabies. And I'm sitting there like on the inside screaming, saying, like if I'd had state secrets, I would have given them all away. Because <laughs> it was stressful. It was torturous. And the reason why it was not because physically I was exhausted. It wasn't because intellectually I'd been overwhelmed by the stimulating conversation of our animals talking. It was because I was emotionally drained. And that the emotional battery we all live with has to stay at a place of healthiness if we're going to experience peace. Which is why when you look at this second visual, I want to show you that what, what happens in recharging us is that the flow into our life tends to come into our lives through at minimum three to five things that emotionally recharge you. And I don't expect you to like, oh, I know what my three to five things are instantly. Chances are you've been doing them in your entire life and you've never sat back and thought, those are emotionally recharging activities for me. There's a reason we call recreation, recreation, because it recreates energy in our life. Right? And so these three to five things tend to kind of come, and I put S-P-I-R-S, I mean E, up there because they tend to come in one of these kind of categories. They may be a spiritual thing. It may be, man, when I listen to the music that we sing on the stage or when I spend time praying or reading the Bible, that's a recharging thing. It may be a physical thing. It, when I go and exercise for 30 minutes, man, it doesn't matter if I feel worse before I exercise. I always feel better at the end. And some of you can relate to that. You're like, I don't want to exercise. Nothing in me wants to exercise. And then afterwards, you're like, man, I'm so glad I exercised. And what you're experiencing in that moment is emotional recharging. It may be I, intellectual, it, it, where it's like you read a really good article that's interesting. You watch a really good documentary or you see a really good stimulating movie or play, right? Or maybe even ballet. That's something that stimulates you intellectually that when you leave it, you find it emotionally recharging, 
Or it may be relationally. That some of you, man, when you sit down with certain individuals, you always feel better at the end. You're like, man, I'll always feel better after a conversation with her. Or man, he always makes me feel, I just have a little bit more energy after I leave our time. I have individuals in my life who are like that. And I make sure I put myself around them when I'm feeling low because I know I will always leave feeling better. It's because they, they're emotionally recharging. Or it may be emotional and that it's a really good laugh. You like comedians, and the reason you like comedians is because you laugh at them. And the reason you laugh at them and what this dynamic's happening is at the end you feel better because you found this emotional recharging. Or for some of you, right, it's what you call your ugly cry, that you just want to watch a, like a sad movie or you watch some movie that makes you, and you just like, people around you think that maybe you're perhaps falling apart. But you're like, no, this is my recharge moment. Like when I see a Hallmark commercial and I tear up, man, something happens on the inside. And I tick up a couple percent. That we all have these things that recharge us. And that when we go through these, this tension of this season of life and we're aware of what's coming out of us, then we can start to intentionally pull those things in. It's where we get to this next dynamic of if we're going to emotionally recharge, it's not okay just to know what it is. We have to schedule it. Right, that you see this, this idea of the shepherd leading the sheep, that he leads the sheep to still waters, to green pastures, that it's the schedule of the shepherd pressed into the sheep's life that brings life. That for me, just to give you an example of what my schedule looks like, that I'm intentional about these five things. I need sleep. I have to have eight hours of sleep, and that may make me weak to some of you, but I don't care. I need eight hours. If I get six hours, you'll think I lost an animal. Because I'm emotional. I tend, I tend to not be very emotional in this like dramatic way. But I can feel far more emotions in a negative way when I haven't slept enough. Sleep is my recharging. Or learning daily. I, I, I'm, you're learning I'm a nerd. I, I read a book a week at least. And it's not because I am smart. It's because that is how I recharge. I love reading. I love learning. And I've scheduled into my rhythm of life reading a book. And the way I tend to do it is audiobooks because I, I don't have time just to sit down and read a book every single week. But if I'm by myself, whether I'm walking, whether I'm on a train, whether I'm in a car, whether I'm exercising, if I've got headphones in, it's because I'm listening to an audiobook. And I'm doing it three times the normal speed because I can absorb it and I can get through a book a week that way. For some of you, it may not be reading. You're like, reading is definitely one of those holes at the bottom that makes things drain out. And that's okay. We're all different. For, for me, a family meal is really important. That if I go beneath four times as a family, us sitting down to eat together, I start to feel the emotional drain. That for me, and it may not be your case, like I said, we're all different. We all have this tension we have to manage. But for me, if I sit down with my family and have a meal four times in a week, it's very recharging for me. Five, six, hey, that's great. I'll take them. They're bonus. Okay? But for me, I've found that in weeks that I travel or in weeks when our pace is really, really hectic and I don't get to sit down, whether breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and just sit down and talk and hear, hear what's going on in everybody's life, that I feel emotionally kind of depleted because of it. 
And so I, I make sure in how I schedule my life and family's life that we have four meals a week together and exercising. I hate exercising. I don't enjoy it. I don't understand people who enjoy it. There's no part of me that says, all I want to do is go outside and run today or go lift weights. But I know that exercising always, always, always on the other side, I'm more emotionally recharged. In fact, it's, it's pretty commonly um, understood now that exercise will give you about a 20% increase in your energy. And so on really stressful weeks, I will actually exercise more because I know I need more energy reserves. I'm dealing with a difficult topic or maybe I'm working through a, you know, a struggle with a family who's, who's losing a loved one or working through a di- divorce. There are emotionally demanding things that sometimes I step into as a pastor. And those weeks I have to schedule those recharges intentionally. And then this Bible prayer, maybe that you're, you're not a spiritual person. For me, I really, my life's been transformed by Jesus. I, I love him. And, and that's a different conversation we can get into another day about how that works. But I pray and I read the Bible every day. And there's usually a verse that stands out. And I'm like, man, that's, and I'll take that one or two verses or the thought that comes out of a passage I'm reading. And, I'm, and I'll say, I'm going to think about this today. I'm going to look for opportunities in my life where I can apply this. I'm going to look for places in my life where I'm not applying it. It may be show hospitality, and I'm like, you know what? I really stink at hospitality today. I want to be more intentional about being hospitable towards people. So I'm going to put that into practice today, and I'm going to pray about that today as I go through. God, help me be more hospitable today. It's not fancy. There's not angels showing up. There's not some secret language that I have with God. It's just very basic. I'm reading it, and I'm looking to apply it. And where I find there's a disconnect, I try to align my life with him and his word. And, and that's, but for me, that's one of those spiritual recharging moments. That if I don't do that, because there are days where I wake up and I'm frantic and I jump out of bed and I just start. And I don't do that. And I can tell my entire day I'm off. Because I didn't connect early enough to recharge. But that when we're willing to recognize the tension, emotionally recharge and schedule it, that we can start to experience transformation. We're going to start to, to taste this peace of the breathing room we've been promised. But here's the thing, uh, and I think it's worth noting, this is probably the big disclaimer of this whole three. You can, um, regardless of your beliefs in Christianity or God or anything, you can put this into motion and it'll work every time. Independent of your belief in God. And the reason why is because God has made us this way. That we are people who live with rhythm, who need emotional recharging, and, and if we're intentional about doing what we'll find is that our batteries will start to charge. But the challenge is that David says in verse 1, I think the secret to it all, because what will happen is if we don't have this last component, we will find ourselves drifting or derailing. The last one is this idea of verse 1. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And I think this is actually the foundational kind of platform and all the other principles are built on. Because what David is saying is David's saying, you're my shepherd, I have contentment. I'm content in life. He's not saying that I don't have desires. He's just saying my desires don't have me. And that's a huge difference. That when you live in a place where your desires when you have them, but they don't have you, then what happens is you're okay at the end of the day that you haven't gotten it, that you haven't arrived there yet. 
What happens when your desires are all-consuming is that you will derail yourself. You will drive yourself into places of unhealthiness. You get so committed to getting that promotion that everything in your personal life suffers. And it's because that desire has you. Because ultimately, when David says, you are my shepherd, I lack nothing, he's making a statement about his trust and submission to God and his rhythms in life. He's like, God, I trust you. I trust that you know what I need. I trust that you know where I'm headed. And I trust that I'm going to honor the way that you've created me and this whole rhythm of the universe in me. And, and it's okay that I don't have that yet, even though I want it. But it doesn't have me. And that many of us get in unhealthy relationships. We get in unhealthy places and spaces of life. We get in unhealthy financial situations. Because our desires have us. Not we have our desires. And that when we trust him, when we, we submit to the understanding that it, he's built these rhythms into us for our best, then we start to experience rest in our life. That when you and I recognize that, that there's a tension that we have to manage, that there's this emotional recharging that has to be a regular part of our life, that when we're intentional about scheduling it, and that underneath all of that is a trust in God, that what we find is that God's best for us is found in our rest in Him. That for many of us living with that disconnect right now, that our best is only found in rest. He ends with this passage, and this is how I want to close it, um, and how I want us to respond, is that David writes in verse 6 that surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. That in the midst of everything that David has said, David ends with this picture. He's like, God, and the word follow, actually in the Hebrew, it's actually stronger. Um, literally, the, the word follow is pursue or stalk. He's like, God, the way you've structured my life and the way that you've you've allowed there to be this margin, this flow, is that my entire life, I know that what's pursuing me is not the next deadline. It's not the next thing. It's not all the things that I haven't done. That's what's marking the pursuit of my life is your love and your mercy. And that that, not deadline, is what defines me. And so, what we want to do in our response time is we want to just celebrate that love and, and remind us of that love, but also to even unpack the fact that um, I gave you a lot of really kind of helpful things that require you to jump into it. That for you to start to experience emotionally recharged, you have to answer the question, what recharges me? And that maybe you've never even thought about that question. Maybe you've never process through that question then we want to give you a space that's why the band's going to lead us in this song it's just a song about his love because the intention that God has for us this desire that God has for us to experience his best is found in our rest and we have to be intentional about saying I'm going to pause to figure out what that is I'm going to start to look to say what is it that recharges me 
and unapologetically schedule it into my life. And, and not only in my life, schedule it in the lives of those who are around me. Because I want to I wanna be for them. But by us taking this moment in this next song just to say, what are those things? Then we set ourselves up for the rest of the month to come back and look at how do we apply this idea of margin in our relationships and our finances and just to life as a whole so that when we get to the end of this thing, we don't regret where we've been because we'll have lived with breathing room the entire time. And we could live and taste a life of goodness and mercy. I want to pray, and then the band's going to lead us in a song, and we're going to respond. But I want to thank you for being here today. I really am excited about this teaching. It's kind of an atypical sermon, and I've just dumped so many, like, tools on you. But this was transformational for me and is still transformational for me because God really does want the best in our lives. And it comes in us submitting and resting in him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for this word and this teaching and the fact that you know us, you made us, you formed us, and that you desire for us to experience rest and breathing room. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.